Hello, Nyla here for part one of Mechanisms Underlying Risk Factors of Alzheimer's Disease. Today you will hear about diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and sleep troubles, and how these might converge with Alzheimer's disease on a pathophysiological and molecular level. We'll go through 11 research articles published in January 2021, right after this intro. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Before I get started, quick reminder that we summarize based on the abstracts of all relevant peer-reviewed papers, so this podcast does not make any judgments on the content of the full articles. You'll have to do that yourself, and you can find the bibliography with each episode, plus I'll be numbering the papers, so it should be really easy to follow up on them. Last quick disclaimer, you'll hear me say AD a lot for Alzheimer's disease, but I'll define any other abbreviations along the way. Today I've got two papers on diabetes mellitus, followed by five on cardiovascular and related diseases, and four on sleep apnea or other sleep troubles. Let's get started with the two on diabetes mellitus. So diabetes is a known risk factor of AD, and the two conditions share some underlying molecular mechanisms. The first paper in our episode sought to explore the underlying mechanisms by sampling blood from patients. The title is Shared Blood Transcriptomic Signatures Between Alzheimer's Disease and Diabetes Mellitus. It was published in Biomedicines by two authors, namely Lee and Lee. The authors aim to identify shared blood transcriptomic signatures between AD and diabetes mellitus, for clues on their shared mechanisms. They combined blood expression data sets for each disease and developed modules of genes that showed similar expression patterns. For each module, they established a gene regulatory network based on gene expression and protein-protein interactions so as to identify hub genes. They found dysregulated transcription factors for both AD and diabetes in the following five genes, which formed one module. So for those of you who are interested, the genes are COPS4, PSMA6, GTF2B, GTF2F2, and SSB. Hopefully that means something to someone. So these genes also exhibited differential co-expression in disease-related tissues, including the brain in AD and the pancreas in diabetes, suggesting that these genes could help reveal common pathophysiology between the two diseases. The second paper looks at how insulin resistance might contribute to the association between type 2 diabetes mellitus and cognitive impairment, specifically its potential interaction with base 1 which stands for beta-site-amyloid precursor protein cleaving enzyme 1, and you may have heard of this in other episodes about AD. So paper 2 was published uh, by first author Bao and last author Shen, and a bunch of authors in between. The title is Increased Beta-Site-APP Cleaving Enzyme 1 Mediated Insulin Receptor Cleavage 
in type 2 diabetes mellitus with cognitive impairment. Don't worry, I will break all of that down for you. And this was published in Alzheimer's and Dementia. This group conducted a clinical cohort study in which they measured plasma base 1 levels and base 1 cleavage activities, including for Swedish mutant amyloid precursor protein, or APP, which results in increased abnormal cleavage of APP, so that is the mutation does. And they also looked at base 1 cleavage activity for insulin receptor beta subunits. The authors additionally measured the levels of soluble insulin receptor beta subunit, which from now on I'll refer to as soluble INSR. They found that patients with type 2 diabetes mellitus had elevated plasma base 1 levels and base 1 enzymatic activities for both targets, and they also had increased soluble INSR levels. This was true regardless of whether patients exhibited cognitive impairment. Interestingly, the glycemic status of the patient correlated with elevated base 1 levels and base 1 mediated INSR cleavage, which was associated with insulin resistance. That brings us to our next section, which is on cardiovascular risk factors, which have come up quite regularly as a comorbidity of AD. If you're interested in this topic more generally, you can check out my latest epidemiological studies episode as well as Ellen's Cerebrovascular Changes episode, both of which were released in the past week. So let's get into it with paper number three, which is entitled Sex-Dependent End-of-Life Mental and Vascular Scenarios for Compensatory Mechanisms in Mice with Normal and AD Neurodegenerative Aging. The first author is Munson or Munsent, and the last author is Gimenez Lort and it was published in Biomedicines. Previous research has indicated sex differences in life expectancy, with females showing an increased risk of both cardiovascular disease and AD. The authors explored the contribution of cardiovascular brain interactions to sex-dependent frailty and survival of male and female mice in two cohorts namely in non-transgenic mice and in 3X transgenic mice, and the latter is a mouse model consisting of three AD-related mutations resulting in amyloid beta pathology. When the authors monitored survival from birth, they found that females showed worse mortality rates, regardless of their genotype. The mice that made it to old age, in other words, the survivors, were used to examine brain-cardiovascular interaction mechanisms that could contribute to normal versus neurodegenerative aging. The results showed sex-dependent disease phenotypes. Physical phenotypes were worse in the transgenic males, and neuropsychiatric and cognitive phenotypes were worse in the transgenic females. You will have to check the paper for details on those phenotypes but the females also exhibited higher hypothalamic pituitary adrenal or HPA axis activation, as well as higher cerebral blood flow and an improved cardiovascular phenotype. So that last result is surprising. It could suggest compensatory cardiovascular mechanisms in end-of-life dementia, which is sex-dependent and may be an interesting target for intervention. Paper 4 is regarding the Cardiovascular Risk Factors Aging and Dementia Score, or the CADE score, 
which is a validated tool to assess dementia risk based on midlife vascular risk factors. The score has previously been associated with accelerated brain atrophy in middle-aged adults, and the authors wanted to determine the regional specificity of this atrophy. The paper is entitled, Higher Midlife Cage Score is Associated with Increased Brain Atrophy in a Cohort of Cognitively Healthy Middle-Aged Individuals. The first author is Lou, and the last author is O'Brien, and it was published in the journal Neurology. 160 cognitively healthy middle-aged participants underwent magnetic resonance imaging in the Prevent Dementia cohort at the study baseline and follow-up for two years to track their brain changes. The authors used voxel-based morphometry to identify areas of gray matter volume differences, both cross-sectionally and longitudinally, between participants with a high or low baseline CADE score. They also developed a gray matter percentage of change map for each subject to evaluate brain atrophy over the two years. After adjusting for age, gender, education, and total intracranial volume, subjects with a CADE score over 6, which is considered high risk, showed lower gray matter volume in the temporal, occipital, and fusiform cortex and lingual gyrus at baseline, compared to subjects with a score equal to lower than 6, equal or lower than 6, rather, so that is a low risk. Those with a higher CADE score also had a greater percentage of gray matter loss over two years, specifically in the supramarginal gyrus, the angular gyrus, precuneus, lateral occipital cortex, superior parietal lobule, and the cingulate gyrus. Okay, paper number five. This next paper examined whether and how hypertriglyceridemia, that is elevated triglyceride levels in the plasma, is associated with increased risk of AD, non-Alzheimer's dementia, and ischemic stroke. Ischemic stroke, I guess. The title is Triglycerides as a Shared Risk Factor Between Dementia and Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease, a study of 125,727 individuals. It was published in Clinical Chemistry by first author Nordestgaard and last author Fricke Schmidt. The authors used data from the Copenhagen General Population Study and the Copenhagen City Heart Study and performed Cox regression analysis to assess the various associations. So what they found is that higher concentrations of plasma triglycerides were associated with increased risk of non-Alzheimer dementia and ischemic stroke, but not with Alzheimer's disease. They report the hazard ratios after adjusting for age, sex, and cohort, as well as in models adjusted multifactorially or for APOE genotype as well. So you can check out the paper for more details. But the association between moderate hypertriglyceridemia and increased risk of both non-Alzheimer dementia and ischemic stroke indicates that plasma triglycerides are shared risk factors for certain types of dementia and for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. But again, there was no association with Alzheimer's disease specifically. 
Paper number six. So speaking of strokes, this next one looks at covert strokes, which are brain infarcts that have no clinical manifestation. As stroke survivors are more than twice as likely to develop dementia, the authors wanted to model how focal subclinical ischemia, or covert strokes, in mice would impact the onset of AD pathogenesis. This paper was published in Brain Research. The first author is Liu, and the last author is McLaurin. And the title is Covert Strokes Prior to Alzheimer's Disease Onset, Accelerate perilesional pathology but not cognitive deficits in an inducible APP mouse model. This study used endothelin-1 to induce ischemia in a transgenic mouse model of AD, namely an inducible model of APP, so there's temporal control of APP gene expression. The reason for this will become clear in a second. So the authors induced the subclinical ischemic events in the absence of APP expression, meaning before AD onset, or at least the the modeling of AD onset, and compared these mice to a sham group. The volume and location of the ischemic lesions was confirmed as being in the medial prefrontal cortex using magnetic resonance imaging. After recovering from surgery and expressing APP for seven weeks, mice with two subclinical ischemic lesions had significantly increased localized amyloid load and microglial activation near those lesions. That said, there were no differences in astrogliosis, nor in behavioral tests including activities of daily living and cognitive function, which suggests that APP expression was solely responsible for behavioral deficits. The authors conclude that a history of two subclinical strokes prior to AD onset does not worsen early disease trajectory in these transgenic mice. Here's another study in mice. It's not on cardiovascular diseases per se, but it's on a condition that is associated with cardiovascular disease, stroke, and dementia, and it also pertains to blood. So I'm talking about hyperhomocysteinemia, which is a condition characterized by abnormally high homocysteine levels in the blood. This often results from a vitamin B12 deficiency, which the authors use in their mouse model. So before I give away the whole paper, the title of paper number seven is Effects of Alzheimer-like Pathology on Homocysteine and Homocysteic Acid Levels an exploratory in vivo kinetic study. It was published in the International Journal of Molecular Science. The first author is Nihad, and the last author is Geislinga. The authors investigated the kinetics of homocysteine and homocysteic acid and how AD-like pathology affected their endogenous levels. The APPNLGF knock-in AD mouse model was used and compared to wild-type mice, so I'll refer to them as the AD mice. The mice received a vitamin B-deficient diet for eight weeks and were put back on a balanced control diet for another eight weeks. The serum, urine, and brain tissues of these mice were analyzed for homocysteine and homocysteic acid using light chromatography and mass spec. The vitamin B deficiency did cause hyperhomocysteinemic levels in both wild-type and the AD mice, 
which was rapidly normalized when the mice were switched back to the controlled chow or controlled diets. However, the hyperhomocysteinemia in the transgenic mice was characterized by significantly higher homocysteine, but not homocysteic acid compared to the wild-type mice. Higher serum concentrations were also associated with elevated levels in both the brain and in urine. This suggests that AD-like pathology worsens hyperhomocysteinemia, but that this can be returned to normal upon administering vitamin B. With that, we only have four papers to go. These ones are on sleep troubles. So before I put you to sleep, uh, let's take a quick break here to stretch. Hey listeners, I'm here to let you know Aminder is recruiting. If you're interested in joining us, shoot us an email at aminderpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Okay, I'm back. I had to check on my lentils, which were boiling over on the stove and made a huge mess. So I hope your break was more enjoyable than mine. Okay, let's get back to it. So I have four papers. Well, actually, no, I have three papers on obstructive sleep apnea for you today, which increases with age and, as you can guess, is associated with dementia. I then have one last paper on other sleep troubles, so we'll end with that. So we'll start with one that looks at sleep apnea in cognitively normal older adults to see whether it impacts memory by disrupting the processing and encoding of information. That's paper number eight, which is entitled Effects of Obstructive Sleep Apnea on Human Spatial Navigational Memory Processing in Cognitively Normal Older Individuals. The first author is Mullins, the last author is Varga, and it was published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine. This study examined 52 older community-dwelling adults who were all cognitively normal, but just under half had untreated, although fairly moderate, obstructive sleep apnea. They were tested multiple times on a 3D maze environment exercise in the evening before and the morning after sleep, and sleep was recorded with polysomnography and a 20-minute morning psychomotor vigilance test. The authors observed no significant differences in overnight percent change in the completion time or in the pattern of evening pre-sleep maze performance. That said, participants with sleep apnea performed worse on average with each subsequent morning trial, whereas those without sleep apnea showed improvements. As the psychomotor vigilance test was not different between the two groups, it's unlikely that vigilance accounted for the morning maze performance. One contributing factor could be relative frontal slow wave activity, which was associated with overnight performance change in older subjects with obstructive sleep apnea, but not those without. This next paper also looks at cognitively normal middle-aged adults, this time with severe obstructive sleep apnea, to examine the potential presence of cortical amyloid beta accumulation. It was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease, and by the way, this is paper number nine. The first author is Lie Hertuala. And the last author is Mervala. The title is Severe Obstructive Sleep Apnea and Increased Cortical Amyloid Beta Deposition. 
The authors performed detailed multimodal neuroimaging in 19 patients with severe obstructive sleep apnea and known etiological factors for possible A-beta accumulation were used as exclusion criteria. A-beta uptake and glucose metabolism were studied with PET imaging, and MRI was used for structural, structural imaging. Sorry. When analyzed individually, around 32% of the patients exhibited statistically significant evidence of increased cortical A-beta uptake, based on elevated regional Z-score values. Two patients also exhibited cortical glucose hypometabolism. However, MRI did not show any structural changes suggestive of AD-related pathology. The changes in cortical A-beta uptake suggest that severe obstructive sleep apnea could predispose individuals to AD-related brain changes even in middle age. While the sample size was small, the results highlight the importance of early diagnostics and proper treatment for severe obstructive sleep apnea so as to mitigate dementia risk in later life. It is getting increasingly difficult to pronounce words as I am increasingly hungry and looking forward to dinner. So let's get this over with. Paper number 10 is, well, we're moving on from neuroimaging. We've got a study on cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers now, or CSF biomarkers, and if you're interested in this kind of stuff, I suggest you check out our Diagnostic Tools episode dedicated to just that. All right, paper number 10 was published in Sleep, and the first author is Diaz-Roman, the last author is Gomez, and the title is Obstructive Sleep Apnea and Alzheimer Disease-Related Cerebrospinal Fluid Biomarkers in Mild Cognitive Impairment. Based on recent findings that CSF-AD biomarkers are associated with obstructive sleep apnea, this study examined this in a sample of 57 patients with mild cognitive impairment, a condition that is often the first clinical phase of AD. Objective sleep parameters were assessed using an overnight polysomnography. You can find the full list of measures in the abstract. At the same time, the presence of common ADCSF biomarkers was assessed, so this included phosphorylated tau, total tau, and amyloid beta-42, or A-beta-42. Correlation analysis showed that higher apnea or hypopnea index, so the latter refers to shallow breathing, both of those were associated with higher phosphotau and total tau. Importantly, these remained uh, significant even after adjusting for potential confounders. While the results are correlational and not causative, they lend support to the hypothesis that obstructive sleep apnea could be related to pathophysiological mechanisms involved in mild cognitive impairment and neurodegeneration. So the last paper in this episode is also on CSF biomarkers, but this time not specifically on sleep apnea. The title of paper number 11 is Sleep Characteristics and Cerebrospinal Fluid Progranulin in Older Adults, the Cable Study. The first author is Wang and the last author is Yu. And this paper was published in Neurotoxicity Research. The authors examined CSF progranulin due to its involvement in various neurodegenerative diseases and because sleep problems can cause abnormal protein metabolism. 
They examined the associations between the self-reported sleep characteristics and CSF progranulin in 747 cognitively intact older adults from the Chinese Alzheimer's Biomarker and Lifestyle Study, so that is the CABLE study. Overall, self-reported sleep disturbances were associated with lower CSF progranulin levels. More specifically, lower CSF progranulin was found in males who woke up during the night, so who woke up uh, from sleep, and in females who had breathing difficulties, which could be indicative of sleep apnea. The authors also looked at APOEE4 genotype and found that this did not mediate the association between sleep characteristics and progranulin levels. These results suggest that sleep difficulties could influence progranulin metabolism, which would attenuate its neuroprotective effects. That is it for part one of uh, Mechanisms Underlying Risk Factors. There we go. Stay tuned for part two, which will be coming out hopefully tomorrow, or which is already out, depending on when you're listening to this. So, for today's episode, I would like to thank primarily Jacques and Ellen Rowe for doing the sorting of all the papers, Courtney for reviewing my script, Michelle for editing this episode, Ellen for reviewing the audio edit, uh, Satish for making the bibliography, and Sarah for the word cloud. And the music credit, as always, goes to our fellow podcast host, Anusha Kamesh, who you can find on SoundCloud under her name, or on YouTube under AK Music. We strive to make this podcast useful and accessible to our listeners, so if you have any feedback for us, if you can think of ways that we could improve, or if you would like to join our team to help us out, please get at us either by email or on social media. You can find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram, and various podcast hosting platforms. Again, a quick reminder for our bibliography if you would like to follow up on any of the papers you heard today. That's all I have for you today. Talk to you again soon.